Well, we are in Judges chapter 13. Judges chapter 13. Take your Bibles and turn there. They're in the Old Testament. So how are you liking Judges so far? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I don't know what you just said, but it sounded interesting. Yes. It's quite a book, um, especially when you begin to go through its entirety and see just the, the, the narrative that unfolds. Um, if, if we're not careful, it can be quite an overwhelming book as we have been making our way through it and seeing all of the, the evil and sin and corruption that takes place. But God is faithful. So we come to chapter 13 today, which, which begins the story of probably uh, the most well-known of the judges in the book, Samson. At least, thanks to the comic book pictures we've seen in the children's Bible and Sunday school posters, right? We, we kind of know or are at least familiar with the story of Samson, and we're certainly going to look at his life, uh, really getting more into his life next week and the week after, uh, but it, and see how what, all that we can learn even through how God used this, this imperfect man to uh, do Israel good. But before we get to the specifics of his life and see how God used him, I think Judges 13 is a great place to, uh, to stop us for a moment and remind us that the book of Judges is is, is, a, is a great reminder that the true deliverer in the book of Judges is not a man or a woman. It is the Lord. The Lord is the, the hero of Judges. And in fact, we could say that the Lord is the hero of the entire Bible. Even though there are many human agents, many human people, human people, this is kind of the same, person, the same thing, many humans uh, in the Bible that God raises up and uses, it is ultimately God who is the hero. It is God who is the one that brings deliverance. It is God who, who does these great things. The true hero of the Bible is the same one who inspired the Bible. And so... As we begin this narrative of Samson and really the, the preparation for his, uh, his arrival, uh, really today I think it will serve us well to, to see how chapter 13 reminds us of how God is at work and he is the hero all the way throughout this book and really the entirety of scripture. And so I wanna read chapter 13, we're gonna pray and then we'll dive right in to our passage today. Judges chapter 13. Beginning in verse one, and the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. There was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites whose name was Manoah and his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore be careful and drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Then the woman came to her husband and told him, man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God. Very awesome. 
I did not ask where he was from, and he did not tell me his name, but he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son, so then drink no wine or strong drink or eat nothing unclean, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come again to us and teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. And God listened to the voice of Manoah. The angel of God came again to the woman as she sat in the field, but Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the man who came to me the other day has appeared to me. And Manoah arose and went after his wife and came to the man and said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. Manoah said, Now when your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life and what is his mission? And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat anything that comes from the vine, neither let her drink wine or strong drink or eat anything unclean. All that I command, commanded her, let her observe. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, please let us detain you and prepare a young goat for you. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, if you detain me, I will not eat your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know that he was, he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, what is your name so that when your words come true, we may honor you? And the angel of the Lord said to him, why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? So Manoah took the young goat with a grain offering and offered it on the rock to the Lord, to the one who works wonders, and Manoah and his wife were watching. And when the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. Now Manoah and his wife were watching, and they fell on their faces to the ground." And the angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and to his wife. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, we shall surely die for we have seen God. But his wife said to him, if the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands or shown us all these things or now announced to us such things as these. And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew the Lord blessed him, and the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Manea Dan, between Zorah and Eshtel. Let's pray. Father, as we consider your word today from Judges 13, would you help us understand more about you? Lord, that we may live lives that reflect your character, but Lord, that we may live lives that are humbled before you, knowing you and giving you glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Really, I want us to see six things in chapter 13 today that I think are instructive for us. Six things from this chapter that really help us see the, the, the amazing work of God in the midst of this perverse and corrupt people. All right, here we go, six, six things. Number one, I want you to see the grace of God that he extends. The grace of God extended. Verse one, it says, this is not... This is not a broken record, sounds like it, but here we are again. The people of Israel did again what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gives them into the hand of the Philistines. This time, 40 years, 40 years of bondage, 40 years of oppression. Nothing is terribly new about the introduction of chapter 13. In fact, you could probably guess before we read it, hey, what's first one going to say? You could probably have, have said, well, the people of Israel are going to be doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord again. And so it's not surprising that this is happening. But what is surprising is what is not written. 
What is surprising is what is absent this time. All the times prior, at some point, we're told that even though the people were doing evil and had been turned over to an enemy, that at some point, Israel cries out to the Lord in their misery for help. There is no such cry in this text. Nowhere in this passage do you find Israel crying out for help in the midst of their misery. There's no cry. There's no call for God to come and help them in the same ways that you see previous to this. They've been given over to the Philistines for 40 years, 40 years, and no such cry for help comes. Seems that Israel has grown so accustomed to the bondage and misery that they have endured from the hands of the Philistines that they almost seem content. They almost seem content in it. In fact, I think you can prove that fact in a later passage. We're gonna look at this next week in chapter 15, verse 11, where some of the men of Judah come to Samson and say, hey, listen, what are you doing? You're messing things up here. The Philistines rule us. And so it seems that, it, that they're content with the oppression that they are experiencing in uh, the hands of the Philistines. So here we have once again Israel in bondage to such an extent that they don't even have enough sense to cry out for help and God delivers them anyway. It's an amazing testimony to the grace of God God acting to deliver his own people who don't even acknowledge their own status. You know, I'm reminded of, of those, sometimes you see these TV shows about intervention, right? Where people have uh, just been so enslaved or oppressed by some kind of addiction or some kind of problem. You could even, <laughs> the hoarders, right? You know, that, that TV, I mean, we could go, uh, not just drugs, but all kinds of things that just kind of oppress people and they almost just are happy in their misery. And, it, and, and, it's, and it's only by the, the generosity of their family that kind of come in, swooping in kind of as this team effort to intervene, to remove them from the harm that they're doing themselves and the harm that they seem content in. I think it's a great picture of what's going on here. What we have in chapter 13, at least in the preparation of Samson's arrival, is, is God intervening, intervening in the midst of his people who refuse to see their plight, who refuse to cry out for help, and yet God is faithful and good to intervene in a way that magnifies his grace. Certainly Israel did not deserve God's kindness. They had turned themselves away time and time again from him. They had adopted and accepted the idols of the, of the surrounding peoples and seemed now content in the oppression of the Philistines. No cry, and yet God acts. You know, if we only, if we only received God's help and his grace, only when we were able to be wise enough to cry out for it, then we would be in a world of hurt. Think about that. If God only acted when you cried out for help, how bad off we would be. We should be thankful that God has acted in 
Who knows how many ways? When we've not cried out for his help, he's still sustaining, he's still preserving, he's still protecting. He will hold me fast, right? Even when we're dumbfounded, even when we're ignorant, even when we're so content in our selfishness and stubbornness, God is working. You know, I think this text destroys the unbiblical idea that God only helps those who help themselves. That's not from the pages of Scripture simply not true. God not only helps those who cannot help themselves, he helps those who don't realize they even need help. It's a testimony to his grace. Should blow our minds to see God do this. I mean, if we could record every dispensation of God's grace in our lives, we would be blown away. As we should see, first and foremost, the grace that God extends in this passage. This is a testimony, this, this preparation to bring Samson about is a testimony to the goodness and the grace of God. Number two, second truth that we see is the help that God provides. In verses two through seven, this, uh, this couple is introduced. We meet a man by the name of Manoah, and the passage also mentions his wife his wife who was barren. Now the fact that she was barren at the time uh, is, is, is something of a common thing that we find in the scriptures. We've been here before with Sarah, with Rebecca, with Rachel. You keep reading, you're gonna see it with Hannah and even later with Elizabeth. I mean, this is, a, this is something that we are, are accustomed to seeing in the scripture. But I want you to notice something here in this passage that you don't see in the other examples of these, these women who were barren initially. While the passage here gives us the name of Samson's father, Manoah, we are not given any details on his mom, not even her name. So not only is she barren, she's anonymous. I like what Del Roth Davis said in his commentary. He summed it up really well. Samson's birth is another instance of God's way of prefacing an exceptional work of God with exceptional difficulties. Yahweh will bring salvation out of nothingness. Here we have a woman whose name we do not know in a situation she is powerless to overcome and yet God acts in a wonderful way. God calls her to be the very vessel through which he was going to provide Israel's savior at this point in their history. You should be thinking, by the way, if you're familiar with the New Testament narrative of Jesus' birth, that this is very similar. This is really a type of foreshadowing of, of what would later come and be perfectly fulfilled in the coming of Christ. There's a lot of dis differences, though. We'll be seeing those as we make our way through the narrative of Samson in the coming weeks. But this is the way of God. He brings salvation and hope in the midst of hopelessness and impossibility. No, no way physically possible that this lady who's nameless could have a child and God comes to her and says, you're going to have a child. My deliverer, my savior is going to come through you. That's how God works. Again, when things are at their worst for the Israelites, in the days when the Philistines ruled, God sends the angel of the Lord to visit a nameless and childless woman who would ultimately give birth to a son that would deliver God's people. Friends, it's a reminder that God is a, a God who provides in the midst of what we consider the most hopeless of situations. 
Not only was she hopeless, but the Israelites as a whole were hopeless. They, weren't even, they didn't even see their condition. They didn't even understand their plight. And yet God acts. The help he brings is a reminder that there's no situation that is truly a helpless and hopeless situation. This passage is like these that remind us that, that no matter how bad things are, God, God can still do amazing, miraculous things. And that should encourage you, friend. That should encourage you because you may find yourself from, you will, no question, you will find yourself at points in your life where you think things are so dire and so hopeless and so helpless that, that you just don't know what's going to happen. But God is the one who turns the impossible into the possible because he is faithful. We need to see the help that he provides. It should be a sense of, a source of encouragement to us. It should remind us that there should be no delusions about where our help comes from. Our help comes from the Lord. Number three, another truth that we see is that the prayers that God hears. In verses eight and nine, you see Manoah prays to the Lord. Oh Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come again. We know the angel of the Lord comes and reveals to his wife that she's going to bear a son and then he leaves. Manoah says, hey, I, I, I want to hear from him myself. And so the man of God returns just as he prayed. Now, he's not asking for the man of God, you need to get, you need to get this, he's not asking for what he calls the man of God to return so that he can be convinced that this is going to happen. It's not as if Manoah is doubting his wife and it's not as if he's doubting God. He's praying to the Lord for the man of God to return, not to be convinced that, this, that his wife's going to have a son. Apparently he believes it. But he wants, to be, he, he wants to seek help and instruction in raising the child. So in, in essence, he's saying, I, what are we gonna do with this child? We need help. That's a prayer I pray about 50 times a day. What am I gonna do with this child? That's basically his prayer here. I don't doubt that this child's coming, it's just when he comes, what are we going to do with him? What's his mission? Verse nine, we're told that God listened to the voice of Manoah. It's a simple statement in this larger narrative, but don't pass that simple statement up. And God listened to the prayer, to the voice of Manoah. I think we often take prayer for granted. Well, of course God hears prayer. Of course God heard his prayer. We might think that and we might just read that, of course. But friends, when you stop and you think about just what prayer is in, in, to begin with, it's an amazing reality. There is no, there's no reason Humanly speaking, no reason that a holy, righteous God should listen to the prayers of an unholy, unrighteous people. But he does. It's a miraculous event, I think. A miraculous event that takes place every time the sovereign God of the universe stoops to hear the prayers of weak sinners. Because you realize what privilege we have. The other day, our Sophie, she's five, she comes into the kitchen. It's in the morning and 
She comes with one shoe on her foot. She's getting ready for school. And that shoe is tied in an awful knot. Well, she had been trying to tie her shoe. She's been working on this for quite some time. And so she asked me if I could fix the knot so that she could tie her shoe. Well, I do that. After a few minutes of struggle and a little assistance here and there, she finally ties her shoe on her own. Well, that was a moment of excitement. So what does she do? She asked me to untie it so she can go show every person in the house that she can tie her shoe, not aware of the clock and time is running short that we have to get out the door. But she's excited and so she wants everyone else to know she was amazed that she could finally tie her own shoe. You know, I'm sure if we could think back to that point in our time, that for each of us, and even more so our parents, that we were thrilled the moment we could finally tie our shoe. But now, as time has gone on, shoe tying seems burdensome, doesn't it? I mean, some of us were thankful when they came out with the Velcro stuff, right, or the, the slip-on shoes. My wife will tell you that even though I have tied shoes, that, that most of my shoes are tied just lightly enough so I can slide right into them without having to tie them each time. I mean, it just takes too much time. It's, it's a burden, right? It, we don't have time to tie shoelaces. So isn't it amazing how we can go from it being an exciting thing that we just wanna do it over and over again to it's too much of a burden, we just wanna slip our shoes on and just be on our merry way. You know, I think that's a great illustration of how we should think about prayer. When we, when we realize for the first time that we actually can, can talk to the creator of the universe, how thrilling, how amazing, how awesome that is, that we can actually, convene, that we can actually communicate with the creator and we can bow our knees before him and, and he hears us. But as time goes on, as time goes on, we somehow lose a sense of that excitement and thrill and amazement that the creator of the universe actually delights to hear the prayers of his people and prayer, prayer loses its thrill, it loses its excitement and it becomes more and more burdensome and we treat it like we just slide our shoes on. Let's just say, our, say, say the prayers we need to say and get on our day, right? Get on, our, get on our merry way because we've got things to do. And we should never view prayer that way. We should never, we, we should never get to that point, but, but we do. I think we treat prayer like that. It's a reminder that we shouldn't, just this brief interaction here that Manoah has with the Lord should remind us that we should never lose our sense of awe that God hears the prayers of his people. When we lose sight of that great privilege and what we are actually allowed to do, we will not hold God or the privilege we have with him in high regard. And let this be a motivation for you to pray. Let this be an encouragement for you to pray, not begrudgingly, but with joy and with expectancy. Do you, do you see Manoah, his confidence in God? He's not saying, Lord, I need proof this is going to happen. I need help when this does happen. He is confident in God and he's pursuing God and he's pleading with God and God hears him and he responds. Let this be a motivation to us. Number four, in this passage we see another truth. It's the greatness that God maintains. See this in verses 10 through 18. Manoah prays and his request was granted. The man of God comes back and appears to Manoah's wife and 
When that happens, she calls for Manoah and he comes and immediately Manoah wants to honor the man with the meal. But the man of God declines. He says, but if you want to do something, why don't you offer a burnt offering to the Lord? If you wanna do something to recognize this and to honor someone, why don't you do a burnt offering to the Lord and honor him? And then Manoah asks just a simple question. He says, well, what is your name so that I may give you proper credit? for all that's happened and will happen. The man of God says, well, why do you ask? It is too wonderful. Now, the text tells us that Manoah did not realize he was talking to the angel of the Lord. And most agree that the angel of the Lord is is a pre-incarnate presence of Jesus, son of God, present there in front of him. and, And Manoah doesn't get that just yet and he's not aware of that and so, So he's a little confused and perplexed. And so they do, just as the angel said, they prepare a burnt offering to the Lord. And when the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, in verse 20, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. Now Manoah and his wife were watching and they fell on their faces to the ground. One of the things that we see in this passage is that there is some level of mystery. There is some level of mystery when it comes to God. I mean, if we could perfectly explain him and if we could just detail him away, then he would in some ways cease to be God. And there's mystery here. There's there's a reminder that, that God, He's mysterious. His name is too wonderful to know. In other words, what he's saying to to Manoah, he says, my nature and character is simply too wonderful for you to exhaust. It's beyond you, and you are not going to be able to take it all in. Manoah's never given his name. It's a reminder that there are just certain things about God we may never know. Now, this is certainly a progressive uh, history that's taking place, and later on we are uh, certainly understanding the differing names of God. But there are just certain things about God that we may never know, things that we could never fathom. In a similar way, we are too called to trust and follow a God who we can never fathom. Scott read this passage this morning in our opening, but I'm reminded in Romans, in that glorious New Testament work from the Apostle Paul, after, after meditating for 11 chapters on God's amazing grace in salvation, Paul simply stops in verse 33 and says, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For it is known the mind of the Lord, who has been his counselor, who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid. For from him and through him and to him are all things, to him be glory forever. This passage is not saying that we cannot know God, but I do think it's reminding us that we cannot exhaust him. We can know him, but we cannot fully exhaust him. He has given us all that we need to know, and that glimpse of him in his word and in creation is enough to leave us humbled and amazed for the rest of our life. In fact, you cannot encounter the greatness of God and not be humbled by him. Why do you think Manoah and his wife fell to their faces? God's greatness is a pride destroyer. 
They are humbled before him. They see his greatness at that moment that he's, the, the angel of the Lord is taken up in the fire and they are humbled before, they, before God because they realize before whom they, they have come. The greatness that God maintains. He is a great God and even when we don't know everything about him, we are still humbled by him because of who he is. Fifth truth that we see is the response that God deserves and you see that there beginning in verse 19 down through verse 23. Noah, they, they offer, they, they see what happens, they fall on their faces to the ground and the angel of the Lord appeared no more to the Manoah and his wife. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, we shall surely die for we have seen God. So verse 22, Manoah gets it. He realizes <laughs> this is no man. This was God right here before us. But his wife, thank the Lord for a godly wife. His wife said to him, if the Lord had meant to kill us, we would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands or shown us all these things or now announced to us such things as these. And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And he grew. You see the response here to God from Manoah and his wife. And, and I want you to see this because, because what we see is really two responses that we need to hold in tension. Manoah and his wife, when the angel of the Lord goes up in the burnt offering, fall on their faces to the ground. They are humbled in his presence. Manoah knew that it was the angel of the Lord, and so they are humble before him. And he concludes, it's over for us, we've seen God. He remembers that God has said before, they need, you can't see my face and live. And so Manoah's thinking, our days are numbered. I mean, we're about to die. We've seen God. He's, he's fearful. He's trembling. He, he's, he's overwhelmed by that sense of God's presence so much that he thinks he's going to die. On the other hand, Manoah's wife speaks a little sense into him. So surely if God had meant to kill us, he would not have promised these things. You see in her this sense of, of joy and confidence in God. His wife encourages him. So I think here you, you kind of see a fuller picture of, of, of the, the response that they give to God was really informative. It's instructive to our, what our own response ought to be. When confronted with his presence, they fall their faces and yet comforted, comforted by the fact that he is who he is, that he, if he had meant to kill them, he would not have made the promises that he had made. What you see here is both fear and comfort, fear and confidence, fear and joy in the response that they have to God. Because that's a right balance. We need a healthy fear of God, but a fear coupled with joy and confidence and comfort. I think we tend to go to extremes when we come before the Lord, when we encounter him. Either we fear him only and shudder in fright and terror before him, or we treat him like some big teddy bear. We should have a healthy tension when it comes to encountering God. I think Psalm 2 verse 11 kind of and it gives us that right tension that we are to rejoice with trembling. 
Rejoice with trembling. I think what's what you see here in the response when these two come before God. Rejoice with trembling. I think that that's often missing in the church. Because I think what we have is one or the other. Either churches have made worship such a production that there's no sense of reverence for God at all. It's just a show. Or people are so caught up with the reverence piece, there's no room to express joy. Friends, we're called to both. We're called to rejoice with trembling, to be joyful, to be confident, to be comfortable in God's presence, but yet to revere him, to fear him. And how do you approach him? People, people often, this is kind of a pet peeve of mine, people often romanticize this love relationship with God. Use language that you would use towards your own spouse. I've always said, if we can sing if, in worship, if we're singing songs, and I, I always say, if I can sing it to my wife, we're not singing it in church. Because I don't want there to be any confusion as to who God is. He's not your boo, right? He's not your, 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 your honey. He's the God, the sovereign God of the universe who deserves praise and worship and honor, and that can be expressed in joy and reverence at the same time. Understand who he is. Don't romanticize God. Don't romanticize him. But yet, you don't have to cower before him. You don't have to, to, to be afraid of him in the sense that you never want to kind of speak to him because he's made a way for you. He's made a way for you to not only know him, but to worship him to follow him, to walk with him. Friends, we're called to fear God. We're to tremble before him in awe, but yet with confidence, with comfort, and with joy. How you respond to him is, is, is important. I think what we see here in their, in their response to him is, is kind of instructive for us in that. It's not a perfect instruction. It's not full and, and perfect in how we ought to do that, but I think it's, it's, it's certainly representative of what we ought to do when we understand who God is. Then number six, we see the way God works. See the way God works in verse 24 and 25. It's, it's amazing that most of chapter 13 is preparation for Samson's birth. Most of the chapter is dealing with his parents, preparing for his arrival, and only two brief verses at the end concern his birth and really, when you get to chapter 14, there's not much about his childhood. Does that sound familiar? Very similar to the birth narrative of Christ. Significant time leading up to his birth and brief reference to his childhood and then ministry as a man. That's what we have with Jesus. So why do we have such a thorough description of the preparation leading up to Samson's birth, unlike we do with the other judges? And not just simply the calling of a man or a woman who, who already exists. I think it's a reminder that God doesn't just work on the fly. God doesn't just work with things that are already in motion. God just, just doesn't work with, with what he has before him. He plans far in advance to accomplish his purposes. It teaches us a critical lesson that, that God is not reactive to life like the open theists believe, if you've heard much about what they believe. God's not just reacting to what he sees 
unaware of what's coming. God doesn't act that way. He is not reactive. God is proactive. He is a planner. God ordains, he plans, and he brings to pass what he's planned to accomplish his purposes. Even with Christ, that is the case. We see in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake. As well, the story of Samson's birth is an amazing testimony to the power and provision of God for Israel who weren't, wasn't even crying out for him. And it's a reminder that really our hope is not in Samson. Our hope is in the one who planned, who prepared, who called him to be Israel's deliverer. Friend, as we continue our way through, through the narrative of Samson, you're going to find yourself quite disappointed with him. He is not someone to hold up as a hero. He's a womanizer. He's a, he's a sinner. I mean, he is not, parents, he's not someone you would want your daughter to marry. He's not someone we can hold up as this great example. He's just not. Yes, the Spirit of God came upon him at multiple times throughout his life to accomplish something, but, but it really wasn't Samson. It was God doing a work through him a flawed vessel. It is an amazing story, but you're gonna find yourself disappointed in Samson. If your hope is in Samson, or let's be more like Samson, friends, you've missed it. He is not our hope. It's a reminder that God's people have a true and lasting savior, and we have a lasting deliverance that, 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 that is ultimately found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And if, that's, if you're here today and you're not a believer, you're not a Christian, and, and you wonder, well, maybe I should just, just be more like these human people that we see in the pages of Scripture. Friend, it's not about being more like so-and-so or more like so-and-so. It's about yielding your life to Christ. Jesus is the one. He is the one who came and lived a life of perfection a life of obedience to the law of God, never failing, never falling short, perfectly fulfilling all that God had commanded him, and yet he willingly sacrificed his life on a cross for sin. If you're here today and you've, you don't know what that is and what that means, maybe you, you don't understand what it means to have your sins forgiven, and you've been trying to kind of make your way right with God on your own, friends, stop right now, just stop. This is freeing to you. I'm, what I'm trying to, to explain here is, is going to free you because you will never do enough. You will never do enough to please God because he is holy and his standard is perfect. If you can reach perfection and maintain that, have at it. But friend, your hope is the one who's already done that. Christ, he is perfect, but yet he died in the place of sinners, and for who would, whoever would trust in him, whoever would believe in him, would have their sins forgiven and be saved. And that is for you. Quit trusting in yourself, quit trying to, to, to do things your way and just simply turn your eyes away from that and put your eyes on Christ. Believe in him and trust in him, and he will save you. He will save you. Judges 13 is rich with truths about the character and activity of our great God. He is a God of grace. 
He is a God who helps the hopeless. He is a God who hears prayer. He is a God who reveals and maintains his greatness, a God who deserves our praise, and a God who works out his plans. He's not reactive in any way, but he sets out to do exactly as he has planned, and we can trust him, and we can know that he is a God that we can honor, that we can trust, and that we can celebrate and follow. He is awesome in every way. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for reminding us today of, of your greatness. Lord, it would be easy for us to get bogged down into the details of Samson, and Lord, we certainly will look at that in the coming weeks, but Lord, it's just good to be reminded of the God in the details, that you are the true Savior of Israel, that you are the true savior of your people. Lord, you are the one to whom we should hope in and you alone. Father, it's just a testimony to your own sovereignty and how you prepared and planned for, for the coming of this judge in Judges. God, which reminds us of, of your greatness, of your grace, of your, of your amazing worth. So Lord, I pray that even through Judges 13, that our hearts would be captivated, that our hearts would be compelled to love you and to follow you and to worship you, to worship you in a way that, that is right and good and pleasing. Or that our confidence would be not in ourselves and not in what we could do, but Lord, our confidence would be in you. So Lord, help us to see as we need to see and Lord, even as we prepare to sing and, and leave in just a little bit, Lord, help us to, to be resolved in our own hearts and lives to follow you. Father, you know our struggles and you know our own failures. God, you know us better than we know ourselves. So Father, would you expose in our own hearts those places where we have failed to see you for who you are? Lord, would you expose in our own lives what we need to see so that we can repent, so that we can trust you and be more like Christ? Father, would you have your way and would you do a great work? We pray this in Christ's name, amen. Let's stand together and sing. Let's respond as God calls us to today. Let's sing together. <laughs>